with our voices, but with our, with our hearts, being completely open to you. Uh, you've spoken in your word and we want to follow it. And so would you help us this morning as we look at it to understand what it says, understand what it means, and then to be able to, to walk in it, to do what it says. So I pray you'd bless this time we have right now with your word. We want to give you the highest praise. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Nebuchadnezzar had a dream, but not the good kind. He saw in his dream this giant statue, and it was made of different metals. And after some events that got kind of uh, difficult, uh, he got an interpretation of the dream from Daniel. And he found out that in his dream, he was the gold head of the statue. That was the Babylonian Empire. And yet one day, there'd be an empire to follow Babylon, and the one to follow that, and one to follow that. But then there was this final kingdom. And it was represented by this, this rock, almost like an asteroid crashing down and breaking the statue. That day, Nebuchadnezzar glorified God, called Him the Most High God, called Him the Revealer of Mysteries. Unfortunately, it wasn't long after that that Nebuchadnezzar got into his mind, I think I'm going to build my own statue. Ninety feet high. Nine feet wide. Mixed metals, no way. It's going to be all gold. Now, there's probably not enough gold to make a statue 90 feet high, 9 feet wide, it was probably overlaid with gold. And it probably wasn't Nebuchadnezzar himself, it was probably his god, it was probably Nebo. And so he had this, this big statue made, and he had it put on this plane, and he called everybody together, all of his leaders, leaders of his provinces, his governors, his magistrates, his judges, everybody that had a leadership role, they are, they are commanded to come to this plane and they are going to swear allegiance to the image. And so he calls them from all over and they, and they all arrive and, and the king orchestrated this perfectly because he had an orchestra. All these different uh, 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 instruments that were going to play at the same time and a herald to proclaim, when you hear the music start, you're all going to bow down and touch your forehead to the ground. You're going to bow in front of the statue. Giving your allegiance to our God. Giving your allegiance to the empire. In a sense. So the time came and everybody assembled. The music played. The music stirs the heart, right? And just in case you thought you might get away with not bowing down it says that there was a furnace made. Probably within seeing distance of the, of the statue itself because the Scripture says if you don't bow down, immediately you get thrown in there. So, so I imagine you're bowing down and you could see the furnace that's waiting for you if you don't. Probably it's a, it's a, it's a, it has the shape of like a milk bottle. With the door in the bottom, you could put the fuel in. You can actually see into it. And then at the top of the milk bottle shape, you throw whatever you're throwing in to the furnace. 
music starts. And whether it's the music that stirs the emotions of I'm going to bow down now, or whether it's looking at the furnace over there and saying, I don't want that to happen to me, everybody bows down but three people. And so you can imagine, you know, uh, the guy bowing down here, you know, and putting his forehead on the ground, and he looks up, and the people right in front of him aren't actually bowing down. And you're thinking, well, what just happened? Did they do a quick bow? Or, well, what happened? And then you realize, no, this is, these, are, these are three Hebrew guys. And who are the Hebrews? Who are they? We don't like those guys anyway. Let's rat them out. So apparently, the king's not even there to see this whole thing happen. But it reaches his ears quickly. There's three guys who don't listen to you. That don't bow down. In fact, the astrologers that turned him in quote Nebuchadnezzar's command word for word. This is what you said, right? That's what I said. These guys aren't doing it. Bring him in. And a violent, temperamental king brings these three guys in. You can almost see this go down like, you know, I heard you guys didn't bow down to the image I set up. You heard I have a furnace ready. And it is ready for you. But I'm going to, in my mercy, I'm going to give you one more shot. We're going to do this again. Music's going to play. And just for you, because I'm a nice guy, I'll let you bow down. But if you don't, I want you to know there is no God that is able to rescue you from my hand. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had grown up worshiping the Lord. They'd grown up reciting the Shema every day. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. It's Deuteronomy 6. I mean, they, they knew this. That this was their life. This was their, this was their God. This was Yahweh. And He's one. And so they answered the king in this way. Can we get the scripture up? You can turn to Daniel 3, 2 if you'd like. But this is what they say. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king, O oh, Nebuchadnezzar, we don't need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to save us from it, and He will rescue us from your hand, O king. But even if He does not, we want you to know, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. Dr. Al Mohler, president of the uh, Southern Seminary, has said that our country is in the middle of a moral revolution. What was wrong a generation ago is no longer wrong but right. And more than that, it's no longer right. But if you say it's wrong, we don't tolerate you to even speak about it being wrong. This is the culture we live in. And I was thinking, how does the church survive a moral revolution? How how do we get through this? What happens when the state declares that you must give your allegiance to it and not your God 
and certainly not the Bible. What happens then? It, you see it in the news more and more. It's, not, it's almost not surprising anymore. The most recent one I found this week, this, I think this is just last week, that um, the internet dating site Christian Mingle uh, was uh, sued by two guys who say you've given no option for a, a homosexual couple to uh, find themselves on Christian Mingle. You, you don't have that option. And so we're suing you to do it. And, and, and basically the state government has said, yeah, yeah, you'll do it. You'll do it. And so they had to pay each of the, each of the guys that sued, I think, $9,000. And I think they paid court fees of $450,000 or something like that. Yeah. So um, this is the world we live in. I mean, th- th- this is where we're at today. So what do you do when the authorities say you must give allegiance? How do you respond to that? How does Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego respond to that in that moment? I want to look at this statement that they've made, in particular the phrase, we will not serve your gods. I just want to take that phrase, third up from the bottom, we will not serve your gods, and just say, well, what does that mean? What do we do with that? What does that statement mean if we were to say it today? What did it mean for them? Here's a few things I think we're talking about. When we say, we will not serve your gods, number one, we're saying, this statement exposes the inferiority of false gods. I mean, what they're saying is, your god Nebo, who whoever the statue was, isn't worth bowing down to. Our god is greater. Our god is one. He's the maker of heaven and earth. And we're not going to bow down to your god. Your god is inferior. Someone once said that we worship whatever we think will save us. That's what we worship. And so for many, for some of us, that, 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 could be, that could be money. Because money gets you out of difficult times. And if difficult times aren't happening, at the very least, money makes your life interesting. It, it provides a lot of fun. And so when you serve money, what you're saying is money will save me. It will get me the medical care I need. It will make life fun. It will get me things that I, I need in this life. And God, the provider, well, yeah, he's there too. But it's money. So, so whatever it is, and in our culture, maybe the other one that's really, really big today is this autonomy and self-expression. I am whoever I say that I am. Whatever I want to present myself to the world, that's, that's what I am. Because if I can just figure out who I am, I will be saved. So the church doesn't look at people trying to figure this out and say, oh man, judgment, you know. Uh, we, we don't look at them and get all angry. And all, I think we look with compassion and say, there are people in our culture that are dying to be saved. And they want to figure this out. Who am I? And because they believe that autonomy is God, you, you can go there. You can go down that road. And yet Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, 
they show us that those gods are inferior. Anything you think will save you besides God, don't worship it. It's inferior. It won't do what it says it will do. Nebuchadnezzar says, who will deliver you? Who will rescue you out of my hand? And they say, our God is able to do that very thing. Your God might not be able to kill us. Number two, when we say we will not serve your gods, the other thing we're doing is it's revealing a humble, God-exalting defiance. What I'm saying is Christians in this culture are going to need to have what those three guys had, a humble, God-exalting defiance. Why do we call it humble? Uh, Well, if you think about it, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they showed up. You know, when, when everybody was assembled and the music started, they're there. You know, they're, they're not bowing, but they have to draw a line somewhere, but they show up. And when the king calls them in, they show up. Here we are, O king. You're still our king. We still honor you. We still do what you tell us. But there is a line here that we can't cross. And that's where we have to defy you. And so, defiance will typically look, I think, in any culture, it will look disrespectful. It, it will look like a lot of things that are negative. It will look that way. But I would say, for many others that are looking closely, there are Christians, there are believers who know how to do this in a way that is humble and give honor to our leaders, give honor to our president, give honor to our governor, Give honor to the mayor. Give honor to people that are in authority over us. They know how to do this in a way that really does follow Peter's direction to give honor to everybody that you owe it to. And that's humility. Humility says, God, you put me in this country, in this place, and set this authority up over me, even if I don't agree with everything that authority does. I'll give honor where it's due. But there's another part of this that says, if the authority tells me I need to do this immoral thing, I won't do it. I will exalt the Lord. I will obey Him. See, some of us, I think, get the God-exalting part right, except maybe we think we're exalting God, but we're really exalting us. You know, because we'd rather thumb our nose at authority and, and get on their case and and be extremely disrespectful, which really just acts like we're the clever ones because we have all the words to say about them. But where's the respect? Can we respect and say, this decision, whatever decision is that our government has made, we don't think it exalts God at all. And if if push comes to shove, we won't follow it. That's the kind of guys Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are. You know, Paul said, I become all things to all men, right? So I can save some. I think in many ways that has to be true of us. We become all things. There's a lot of things you can give up before you compromise, before you compromise your convictions, right? There's a lot of things you can give up personally before you say, I can't cross this moral boundary. So give things up, you know? Get walked on. Get trampled. Paul did. But when it comes to the boundary of the gospel and the cross, when it comes to the moral standards of God, you say, I can't cross the line. 
I can't do it. And I defy you. Number three. When you say, we will not serve your gods, you are showing that you have faith in God and not an earthly outcome. It must be one of the most uh, heroic things ever spoken in Scripture. I'll read verse 17 again for you. If we are thrown in the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to save us from it, and He will rescue us from your hand, O King. Verse 18. But, even if He does not, even if He does not, we want you to know, O King, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold that you have set up. Even if He does not. So the question you have to ask yourself is, uh, in, if I take a stand for what's right, am I willing to pay the price for it? Is my faith in God and what He wants for my life, His, His standards, His morality, His ethics, His desires, or is my faith in an earthly outcome? You know, I've talked to the people that have said, I took a stand at my job. I said, I can't do this thing. It's unethical. And my boss fired me. You know? I mean, that's, that's it. I mean, you gotta be willing to say, I'll pay the price for my convictions. Cause my convictions are not in how it's gonna work out. My convictions are in God. Do you ever pray like this? When, when you, when you pray, um, sometimes we fall into a trap of like, Lord, I know you can do anything. And I know you oppose evil in the world. And so something evil is happening to someone in my family. And I pray that you would get rid of it. Wipe it out. Oppose that evil thing. And it's like we know God opposes evil. We know he's good. He does know evil. And he opposes evil in the world. We know this. Scripture says this. But then you look at that person in your family and, and it doesn't look like God's opposed to the evil. It doesn't look like he's done what he said he would do. Does that shake your faith? When you pray for healing and it doesn't come, does it shake your faith? When you tell the mountain to move and it doesn't move, does it shake your faith? Because if it does, it could reveal that you put your faith in a certain outcome that you want to happen. That you even think God might do, because why wouldn't He do this? But then when He doesn't. Look, I've prayed for people, and there's times, and you know this, you've prayed for people, there's times when you pray, and you get a sense that God's going to do exactly what you have asked for. Have you ever felt that? And then you see God do it. And you're like, God, somehow your spirit like gently guided me to pray for this person, and it just worked. You, you acted. And it wasn't me. You, you did it. And then sometimes you pray and you're sure. You're so sure and God doesn't work. He doesn't do what you asked at least. He works. But He didn't do what you asked for. And that's when you got to look at your faith and say, what is my faith in? The answer to my prayers? Or the God who's going to be in the furnace with me regardless? He will be with me. What's your faith in? 
And then finally, uh, number four. When you say, we will not serve your gods, that statement is grounded in the theology of a rescuing God. Our God rescues. When you say Jesus saves, it's one of the most profound things ever because we don't, but we don't just mean Jesus saves in, in a spiritual sense. I get to go to heaven. That's true. But we really do mean God saves in every sense of the word saves. So, so when they're talking to Nebuchadnezzar and they say this, here's how they say it. Verse 17, again. If we're thrown in the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able. That means he has power to save us from it. And he will rescue us from your hand, O king. But even if he does not, we want you to know we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you've set up. God is a rescuing God. This shouldn't surprise us. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they know their Bible. They know about the ten plagues on Egypt, the, the, the gnats, the darkness, the frogs, river turning to blood. They, they know this. They know they worship a God who can part the Red Sea so you can walk through on dry ground and then he can put it back together and drown the Egyptians. They know this. God is a saving God. And even if at the end of this story, they're just ashes. God is still a saving God. Even if this doesn't work out well for them. And so when they say, when they say, our God is able to save us and he will rescue us from your hand, I wonder if we would consider it a rescue if they would have been burned to nothing. Would it be a rescue? To live as Christ, to die as gain? And even though they don't say it like this, doesn't it mean that they wouldn't have to serve Nebuchadnezzar anymore? Or wouldn't that be a little bit of a gain? That my life is gone, but my new life starts with God? When we say God saves, we do mean He saves the body. The, we, we don't just mean spiritual, we mean physical too. Well, how would that work? You know, if they, if they get burned up, their body's gone. What kind of salvation is that? It's a kind of salvation that gives you a resurrection body. That, that, that will never get sick again. They can't get burned up. A resurrection body that will never have cancer. That will never break down. That will never get old. That has no limitations. That's the body you get. Because God is a rescuing God. And He rescues us from this. Some of you know exactly what I mean because you feel like this is a traitor, you know? This has given you all sorts of things that you don't want in your life, namely pain. God is a rescuing God. Sometimes the rescue happens in this life. He just reaches down and he heals. He is a rescuing God. And this whole story is about that. Because Nebuchadnezzar, he starts it. You know, he started this whole line of thinking by saying, what God will rescue you from my hand? And those three guys say, our God is able to rescue us from your hand. How does the story end? Let's look at it together.
verse 19. Nebuchadnezzar was furious with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and his attitude towards them changed. He ordered the furnace heated seven times hotter than usual, commanded some of the strongest soldiers in his army to tie up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and throw them into the blazing furnace. So these men wearing their robes, trousers, turbans, and other clothes, I don't know if you see the, the funniness of this, but I just want to point this out to you. They're wearing their robes, trousers, turbans, and other clothes. Maybe it's not funny. Maybe it's morbidly funny. I, mean, I think the idea is... <laughs> He's so mad that the thing is seven times hotter. He's so petulant that he says, keep their clothes on. I think the idea would be your clothes would burn up first and, and, and there'd just be flames engulfing you because your clothing's burning up. Um, it, it's just so like strong. And, and the king's command was so urgent and the furnace so hot. Verse 22, the flames of fire killed the soldiers who took Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, firmly tied, fell into the blazing furnace, which I again thinks, I, I think it's a milk bottle shaped structure and they fell into it. Tied up, bound. Clothes, hat, everything. Then King Nebuchadnezzar leaped to his feet in amazement and asked his advisors, weren't there three men we tied up and threw in the fire? They replied, certainly, O king. He said, look, I see four men walking around in the fire, unbound, unharmed, and the fourth looks like a son of the gods. Our God is a rescuing God. And when you walk through the fire, He goes with you. Jesus is Emmanuel, right? God with us. He's with us. And He goes into the fire with us. I, I can't prove that that is Jesus. I mean, it doesn't say it's Jesus. I think there's good reason to think and speculate that it's, it could be Jesus with them before he came to earth in a body, earthly body. Could be an angel. Nebuchadnezzar, verse 26, then approached the opening of the blazing furnace and shouted, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out, come here. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the fire and the satraps, prefects, governors, royal advisors crowded around them. Can you see the picture? Everyone's gathered around them. They saw the fire not harm their bodies, nor was the hair of their head singed. Their robes were not scorched and there was no smell of fire on them. Then Nebuchadnezzar said, Praise be to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who sent his angel and rescued his servants. Rescued his servants. I think it's awesome that Nebuchadnezzar started this whole line of thought. What God will rescue you from my hand? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego say, Our God's able to rescue us from our hand and he will rescue us from your hand. And at the end of the story, Nebuchadnezzar says, Praise be to God who rescued his servants. This is who our God is. Jesus saves. They trusted him and defied the king's command and were willing to give up their lives rather than to serve or worship any God except their own God. Therefore, I decree that the people of any nation or language who say anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to be cut into pieces and their houses turned to piles of rubble for no other God can save in this way. There's a pagan king who gets it, at least for a moment. No other God can save in this way. So I don't know what you worship. I don't know what earthly thing you think will save you in this life. But nobody saves like our God. Someone should have amen. I heard someone amen me. Nobody saves like our God. Can I close 
uh, with Isaiah 44. I was only going to do this if I had time, but I got, I got time. So look at Isaiah 44. Sometimes you read a passage and it's like you've never seen it before. This was one of those for me this week. Where it just, it just smacks you. It's just like, where did that come from? That is so awesome. I can't wait to read it to everybody. Um, if I was long-winded, I was going to tell you to go home and read it for yourself. But um, here we are. Let's do this. Isaiah 44. I want to close with this idea. Isaiah 44, verse 12. The blacksmith takes a tool and works with it in the coals. He shapes an idol with hammers. He forges it with the might of his arm. He gets hungry. He loses his strength. He drinks no water and grows faint. The carpenter measures with a line, makes an outline with a marker. He roughs it out with chisels, marks it with, a, with compasses. You know where this is going yet? Just wait. He shapes it in the form of a man, a man in all his glory, that it may dwell in a shrine. He cut down cedars, or perhaps took a cypress or an oak. He let it grow among the trees of the forest, or he planted a pine, and the rain made it grow. It is man's fuel for burning. Some of it he takes and he warms himself. He kindles a fire and he bakes bread. But he also fashions a god and worships it. He makes an idol and bows down to it. Half of the wood he burns in the fire. Over it he prepares his meal. He roasts his meat and eats his fill. He also warms himself and says, Ah, I am warm. I see the fire. From the rest he makes a god, his idol. He bows down to it and worships. He prays to it and says, Save me! You are my god! They know nothing. They understand nothing. Their eyes are plastered over so, they're, so they cannot see and their minds closed so they cannot understand. No one stops to think. No one has the knowledge or the understanding to say, half of it I use for fuel. I even baked bread over its coals. I roasted meat and I ate. Shall I make a detestable thing from what's left? Shall I bow down to a block of wood? He feeds on ashes. A deluded heart misleads him. He cannot save himself or say, Is not this thing in my right hand a lie? Remember these things, O Jacob, for you are my servant, O Israel. I've made you. You are my servant, O Israel. I will not forget you. I've swept away your offenses like a cloud. Your sins, like the morning mist, return to me, for I have redeemed you. I don't even think I need to say anything else there. I mean, it's like, you took the wood, you planted the tree, you watered it. The rain, actually, the rain watered it. God watered it. You chopped it down. Some of the wood you used for your fire, cooked your meal, kept you warm, you were happy about it. Your campfire. And then part of it you made into a God and you bowed down and said, save me. God's given us so many good gifts in this country and I think you'd agree, this is a great country to live in. We love America. 
the, the financial blessings we have, the prosperity, the freedom we have. There's so much that God has given us. Dare we take those things and make them into a God and say, save me? That's what we have done. And the challenge is to say, none of these things will save my life. God saves. Jesus saves. And it's a done deal because He died on the cross for your sins. He's already paid the price. If you haven't received Him, would you consider it? Let me pray for you. Worship team.